Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Today, I get to welcome Michael Edenson, co-founder and CEO of Fianu Labs. And today, Michael's going to talk to us about something that I've thought about to a certain extent, super abstract extent. I mean, let's be honest, I'm marketing guys, but I've, I've listened to really smart people talk about this issue for years and not be able to solve it. And we're so what we're talking about today is automated government, automated governance. So you heard me right, even though I stuttered, automated governance. Um, and Michael co-authored a book um, called Investments Unlimited about this, and has been working with some really smart people to solve these problems. So welcome to Tech Transforms, Michael. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Carolyn. I really appreciate you joining us today. Let's start off with, give us a little bit of your background. Yeah, so um, I cut my teeth as a software engineer. That's my background, that's my trade. Uh, that's where my heart lies and where my my sympathies are too. So, um, you know, the majority of my career was spent in the financial services industry, uh, where, you know, in the latter years, I focused a great deal on governance and compliance uh, of software releases in the context of, of bank regulations. Um, so, you know, that's, that's where I am. I'm a developer. That's, that's, uh, you know, that's where I get all of my, my inspiration from. Okay. So I'm just gonna, you know, bridge a gap right now between finance and government agencies. I mean, so many regulations. <laughs> so much governance in finance that will certainly translate to government agencies. So let's talk about Fianu Labs. Um, you guys automate software governance and bridge the gap between engineering, quality security, and audit. Tell me a little bit more about that. What are your goals? What does that mean exactly? Because a marketer wrote that line. So tell me what it means to you. <laughs> Right. Well, what it, what it means to me, our goal is to make software governance accessible and easy, right? So if we did our job, compliance will go up, release cycle times will go down, developers will be happier and more productive. So, we, you know, Fiano Labs provides products that help you uh, capture event metadata throughout the CI CD pipeline, um, compare against predefined policy, producing immutable attestations of pass or fail. Very simple, straightforward, easy to understand. And then ultimately provide the mechanism for automated enforcement of those policies. So taking all of the object or taking all of the subjectivity out of the, the governance process and making it completely objective and reproducible so that you can make automated go or no-go decisions. And then your audits are as, as easy as a simple click. Okay. What have your biggest challenges been so far at tackling this mammoth goal? Well, I mean, there, there have been a lot of challenges, but I think our, our biggest challenge right now is really elevating 
um, what it means to call something evidence in the context of you know, software governance. Um, I think a lot of the solutions out there or a lot of the current thinking around evidence is, okay, what can we capture? And not really, what is the story that we're trying to tell at the end of this thing, right? And so, um, you know, our, our real focus in that regard is trying to get people to realize um, that evidence isn't just this random metadata that's captured from here and there, but instead it's, it, it's, it's going through all of the enrichment uh, and providing all of the context that's necessary for an auditor to come and reproduce those results that you're using to base uh, your your enforcement off of. And so, you know, we'd like to 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 get the community to a point where they have a higher standard for what constitutes as evidence. Okay. So clarify for me what you mean by evidence and how like how that plays into the auto automated governance. Sure. Well, when you look at a lot of manual governance right now, what passes as evidence could be something either just a manual attestation that said, yes, I did this, or, you know, a screenshot of the results to give some type of proof that you've done it, um, and, and anything in between of varying degrees. And, you know, I've, I've seen firsthand, and I've, I've also heard many stories about organizations where, you know, a developer has been uploading the same screenshot for the last 18 months, uh, and suffice to a particular <laughs> specific requirement, and it was just checked off because they filled out the slot. Evidence is just it's a CYA type thing, right? It's it's yeah. it's if you're asked about it, right? Instead of evidence in, in its integrity being the core of of what you know of what the criteria is, and so promoting evidence that allows you to to define certain pieces, like all right, I'm saying that this event happened, that I did this thing. What was that event? You know, what did it happen to? What is the asset in question? Um, when did it happen? When did it start? When did it stop? When did I observe it? How did it happen? What was the result? Did that result mean policy? How can I verify that data? So being able to fill out those slots as you capture your evidence and making all of those data points uh, an integral part uh, of, of the, the, the evidence that you're using to, to make these governance decisions. Okay, so you just blew my mind a little bit. It never occurred to me that somebody would fake governance, but why not? I mean, when you think about all the controls in place, and I'm thinking about government controls specifically, like I'm familiar with the NIST controls to a degree, um, and there's so many, and this um, like showing that you're within compliance has to happen pretty fairly often. Sure. So yeah, why not say, yep, here's my COVID test. It's negative. <laughs> And use the same photo over and over all year long. I didn't do that. Um, so is that what you just told me? That developers are responsible to prove their own compliance with the governance and sometimes they fake it? Well, yeah, and I, I don't mean to say in a malicious sense. I'm not trying to indict anyone here, but right, developers you just are, do your job. Yeah, it's a do your job type thing. And developers want to be productive. They want to get the job done. And oftentimes, proving compliance stands in the way of that. And so what ends up happening is absolutely, there's a disconnect oftentimes between the stakeholders that are responsible for enforcing a control and the 
the, the party that is responsible for producing the evidence of that control. Because uh, the stakeholders oftentimes aren't in the weeds enough to actually get the evidence, so they rely on the developers to produce it. And so sure. developers are going to do what developers are going to do, which is get the job done. Um, and so in some cases, in large organizations, um, you know, they're able to squeak by with things like that. And, you know, I've, I've seen it in varying degrees, sometimes just a simple, you know, just this one time. Uh, in, other, in other scenarios, I've seen it where it's been, uh, you know, a, a pretty long running pattern of behavior uh, that was really hard to catch because oftentimes the the people that are responsible for doing the manual work of enforcing the integrity of this evidence simply can't keep up with the amount of software, the amount of changes to that software, and the number of developers that are making those changes. And so naturally, things are going to slip from the cracks. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think our focus is really to elevate what evidence means, because if you get that piece right, that'll answer a lot of those challenges right off the bat. Yeah, so we baseline what the evidence is, and then we automate that audit trail. So we're improving security, we're improving productivity, um, and we're able to scale. The manual stuff, like I said, just the few controls, which are hundreds that I've seen and am slightly familiar with, it's overwhelming to think about how anybody can keep up with this. So, okay. Um, let's talk about your book, the book that you co-authored, uh, last fall investments unlimited. Who did, who was your co-author? Curiosity. Oh, we had a couple co-authors. So, um, Helen Beal, John Rezatarsky, Caleb Quirin, Bill Bensing, John Willis, Topol Powell, Jason Cox. It was quite, quite the list of people. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, but all, all of them were great collaborators and have really, you know, everyone brought their own in the weeds kind of stories to to the book, and so um, it it I, I think it was it was a large roster, but it it, uh, it it meant that we covered a lot of scenarios in the book. So, give us an overview of what the book is is about specifically. Sure. Well, Investments Unlimited is a fictional story. It's a novel about a fictional bank called Investments Unlimited and their journey to automated governance. So, as they, you know. As they crossed a certain threshold, they're, you know, they were a, um, a smaller bank that became a bigger bank. And when they crossed that threshold, there were a heap of new requirements that were put on them. And they really were not able to keep up with those requirements. And so, you know, in the face of, uh, of, of an MRIA, uh, which is a pretty severe, um, you know, uh, ruling from a regulator, so in the face of an MRIA that they needed to remediate, uh, it was a race against the clock to find a solution. And their their approach was more holistically, uh, it was which was to 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 build automated governance into their software release procedures. Um, and so it, it details, but I won't give away the ending. But uh, it really details not just the the technical piece of of how to get it done, um, but talking about the organizational side of things and how do you get all of these different silos, risk, audit, security, quality, engineering, executive leadership, everyone to buy in to this same shared language and agree on this new paradigm for governance and enforcement uh, of, of these policies. You just touched on something that I meant to ask earlier about. Um, so if you have managed to automate 
some governance. Ha have you? Yes. Do you have some automation in place? Okay. So you just listed a whole bunch of different, I mean, essentially business groups Well, some of them. How did you get them to trust the automation? Well, that's a really good question. And I think this is going to vary from organization to organization. I've seen organizations where, you know, one group was really against that whole idea because they were, you know, really well adjusted to the manual process. Oftentimes in that scenario, the group that's most defensive of the, the, the current state are not the ones that are, uh, you know, bearing the brunt of, of what that entails. Um, and, and other organizations I've found where, you know, those groups that are traditionally more reluctant were, you know, first on board and kind of leading that change. I think it's different when you go from organization to organization, but I think the way that we found applies best across uh, the majority of organizations is to first get everyone to write down what they're responsible for, how they go about achieving that. So for example, um, if you have a security director whose team is responsible for uh, vulnerability remediation and you know uh, time to remediate, um, among other things, and, and part of that is ensuring that applications of the highest risk tiers are not allowed to release to production uh, with certain higher critical vulnerabilities, right? And they're responsible for making sure that that's the case prior to every release. So they sit in on your, uh, your, your change advisory board. And when an application release comes up for, for question, they attest that, yep, they have you know, no higher critical vulnerabilities subject to the policy. Um, you know, that, that's a very common use case. And in, in that scenario, the first question would be, all right, what are you responsible for? We're making sure that no applications of, you know, these risk tiers are responsible for, for or are able to release with, with certain vulnerabilities. And then how do you go about deciding that? Well, we, we read, you know, the security results, right? So whether it's SAST or IAST or, um, you know, any of, um, of these tools. So if you get them to write those things down, which many times in large organizations, those aren't really written down or published anywhere. But if you get them to write them down, then you can put it in code. And if you put it in code, you can automate the collection of the evidence, automate the production of the result. And I think in that sense, if you're able to walk them along and, and bring them along on that process, you can say, yeah, here are your own words. We just we just expressed it in code. Now your entire decision-making process is automated. Um, and at first they may not trust it. They may need to do their own checks and verifications as they should. Um, but, but in the long run, it's really a play for efficiency for them as well. Because as I mentioned before, they're a stakeholder in this and they're not scaling commensurate with the scale of software that's being built and the number of engineers that are being added. So they need ways to have efficiency too. And so when you bill it in that regard, getting people to, to buy into this as a way that they can better do their job, um, we found that to be the most successful you know, starting point to, to getting organizational buy-in. Well, I'm guessing that the automation um, comes with a report, like with an evidence trail that they can just look at and trace back. So they can not only spot check, but they could have this report and look at, I guess that would be one way they could spot check is just look at that evidence trail from the automated report. Is that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you're not just automating like government mandated controls. You're talking to business line owners and automating what's important to them, which often, you know, obviously they have to check these boxes so they don't get the 
What what's the banking, the bad thing that happens in banking? Oh, an MRIA. <laughs> yes. A matter and requiring that, immediate attention. There we go. So they don't get that. But it sounds like they can even say, okay, these are some of for this organization, here are some security checks that we need to make sure that we have in place. Yes. So, and, and exactly right. And there are sometimes where, you know, you have pre-prescribed controls like the NIST or MITRE controls uh, in other scenarios. Um, and this is a case that's, that's very common in a lot of different organizations in different regulatory environments. A lot of times they're audited based on their adherence to their own policies and procedures. Mm. And so, you know, that's where, you know, when it, when it comes to be the, uh, you know, the, the biggest hiccups for these organizations, it's because they've got these own policies and procedures that they need to enforce as well that tend to, to add to that burden. Mm -hmm. Okay. So is automated governance related to, or even is, is the authority to operate part of automated governance? How, how does that fit in? Yeah. So the way that, that we think about it, it's, it's separate from the authority to operate. Uh, but but the way that we like to say is that it is a method for achieving the ATO, right? So uh, it can accelerate your ATO process and it can it, it can uh, help you reach it faster. But what automated governance really is, is a means of achieving continuous ATO. So, um, and it's important to note that automated governance is not automated compliance. Mm. It's automated evidence capture, Got it. the automated evaluation against policy to produce a repeatable result, and then the automated enforcement of, of that policy, meaning stopping something that needs to, that, that it's going to happen from happening because it either you know, met policy or didn't meet policy, um, and having that all be machine-led. So there's no manual attestations, which changes everything from being subjective to, to objective. So you're working with organizations right at the very beginning, the inception, and you're baking this in to the code, their requirements. So that will, in the end, achieve a continuous authority to operate within the government, continuous or automated governance for you know commercial organizations, yeah? Yes. And I think, you know, once that's off the ground and once that that that's been rolled out, I think that you, that the upkeep of compliance becomes easier because naturally now, I mean, if you talk to any developer in a regulated environment, when it comes to the things that they're required to do in order to make a change or in order to make a release, one of their biggest challenges is not it's not doing that thing. Oftentimes, doing the thing is is relatively simple. The biggest challenge is knowing all the things that they're required to do, mm -hmm. um, because you know how it can be with these regulations. Sometimes it's more of just word of, word of mouth, right? And so it's not clear to them off the bat. It's not transparent what needs to be done. What do you need as a result of that? How is it being evaluated? Uh, and then what am I able to do once I complete it? And so one of that those core principles of automated governance is policy transparency. So, you know, once you get to that point where you've reached some sort of homeostasis and compliance, it's very easy to keep it now because developers know exactly what's expected of them. And then they're able to go and do those things to, to achieve that compliance. So I'm thinking about, you know, creating an organization, an agency from the ground up. And it's like, okay, 
so we're we're building this organization we've got these these blueprints that include all of this so much easier in my mind than taking a mature organization that's got everything already built out how do you inject this how do you you know cuz you're talking about you have to start at the code level and and build it out from there. So how do you inject this into the mature organizations? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it starts with taking inventory. So you can't govern the things that you can't see. And a lot of times there are pieces of software that are being built and pieces of software being shipped that aren't easily accounted for, for all of the things that concern them. Um, so one of the things that we do first when we go into our organization to, to, to set up Fiano or to just even begin that automated governance process, I've seen companies do it very successfully as an internally built uh, capability as well. But the, the first thing that needs to happen is knowing what's being built and what's being shipped. Right. And, and being able to trace that all the way from the code repository to the commit to pipeline job that produces the deployable artifact and then the pipeline job that ships it. Um, and so once you take inventory of all the things that are building and all the things that are shipping in your organization, then piece by piece start to check out, check off uh, different controls. And a lot of times as those controls are being serviced currently, they use a variety of different tools in the tool chain. So if you have inventory, then the next one is just take one piece, one piece of the tool chain that maybe suffices three or four controls, and then start to, to roll those out as, as deep into the company. And gradually over time, you're able to scale up to these, these controls pretty quickly, I'd say, um, if you have accurate inventory. So let's just take a banking institute you know, that's been investments around. unlimited. Let's use investments unlimited. Let's use investments unlimited. Let's say it's well, you said though that they were a new bank, right? They were they were pretty, I mean, they were an established bank. Okay. Uh, that they crossed a threshold that vaulted them into a new set of, set of regulatory requirements. So uh, got it. This the same problems that come from from you know years of doing it the old way now suddenly subject to a whole host of new new requirements. So investments unlimited is going to tell me the story of how you were able to achieve automated governance in an established organization. Is that yeah, yeah? okay. Tell me one of your favorite um like horror stories <laughs> from investments unlimited. Well, there is a scene in Investments Unlimited with where the engineering team that's tasked with uh, implementing a somewhat technical solution to the problem, which became automated governance, is at a briefing with leadership. And the engineering team uh, starts to write on a board and say, here's the progress that we've made. And they talk about onboarding applications. And there's a, a huge dispute in that meeting over what the denominator of applications are. So the executive leadership says, I don't care that you onboarded 300 applications. What's the denominator? And the team struggled to produce the denominator because they didn't have that inventory. And what so- What do you mean because, denominator? Like a common- So let's say Investments Unlimited had 500 
applications to the company. Uh-huh. And the team said, well, we onboarded 300. And the executive said, it doesn't matter. What's the denominator? Well, the denominator was 500. But they really struggled to realize that because they didn't know how many applications were building. So they didn't know how far along they were in, in onboarding. Oh. And so they go along this path, which, you know, I've seen in practice uh, that, that that's really tempting, which is let's just automate the governance right away. And that's great. But you end up not really knowing how much of the established organization's applications you've covered because you've never taken inventory. Mm. Um, and so there's a big there's a big confusion about that, which I, I think I hope it's a, a scene that uh, will resonate with the, the folks that have been in those types of, uh, of meetings. But it does underscore a pretty important and uncomfortable challenge, which is you first have to know what's out there, what you're building and what you're releasing before you can start automating the governance for it. How does an organization go about mapping that? I mean, I know there are tools in Investments Unlimited, in what you do with Fianio, I mean, do you use industry tools to go in and discover the IT environment? Yeah, that's a great question. So we try to do it based off of observing things that happen, right? So uh, observing what gets built in a pipeline, observing what gets published to an artifact repository, uh, observing what's running in production. And so at any one of those places, if we build something but never saw it released, that tells us something. If we build something and never saw it get published, that also tells us something. Um, if something was published that we didn't see build, okay, now we're starting to understand some that came from somewhere, right? Uh, if something was released that we didn't see get built or published, tells us something as well. So it, it, that's, you know, we provide those tools and the capabilities for an organization to start to fill out you know, those, those different slots. Um, but what it comes down to when it, in, in that sense is, is a lot of times on the organizational side where, you know, you may have a large organization and this will sound very familiar in the, the, the government space where you have, you know, five or six different pipeline platforms, right? You've got, you know, Jenkins CI, Circle CI, GitHub Actions or, 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 or GitLab CI, um, you know, cloud-based Jenkins, you're, you could build a, a application on many different CI pipeline platforms using many different pipeline libraries. Um, and you can deploy it on equally as many different deployment platforms. So what you find are that the number of different permutations of ways that you can reach production with an application at a large organization with all these different pipeline and SCM instances um, is a lot to manage. And so one of the things that we encourage on the organization side for cleaning that up is trying to establish official paths to production. So uh, official shared libraries, right? Where you can and you can control what's being built and what's being published and, and then you know use the appropriate tooling to observe it and, and, and categorize that in your inventory. Um, but but that that's one of the biggest uh, you know tech debt challenges that we see at large organizations that they just have a sprawl of different ways to build and release, and you know automated governance will help you consolidate it, but mm -hmm. it still is an organizational challenge that you need to to work on, and so um, that's one of those those pieces that we kind of highlight in the book that I think um, many will relate to if they work in those large organizations because that's I mean that's what really leads to some of the most 
um, nerve wracking questions during audit uh, is, is, is when you're not sure exactly how things got billed or released, but, mm -hmm. uh, but does that answer your question? Yeah. I mean, and for our listeners, it sounds like if this is one of your challenges, this is a really good book to, to read. So I want to shift gears a little bit before we run out of time. I got to talk to Dr. Stephen McGill, such a fun interview. He was so patient. Um, helping me understand a lot of things about application security and open source. But um, he actually shared with me that you guys are co-authoring a white paper um, focused on software asset inventory. I mean, the inventory, you've already mentioned it. So tell us a little bit more about software asset inventory and, and maybe even how it fits into I mean, it's kind of obvious, but tell us how it fits into automated governance. Well, you know, I think you're right in the basis of basic inventory and just knowing a piece of software where it's building, where it's releasing and know, knowing that it exists. That's inventory. But, you know, we've got a great group uh, with Stephen and a few others um, is, you know, all part of that IT revolution uh, group of authors. And and what, what we really set out to do is say, OK, it's great to, to know about all these things. And that's a foundational piece of doing automated governance. But. We, we've noticed at companies that we've observed automated governance in that the e efficacy of automated governance is still somewhat hindered by what is known about these software assets. So we may know a software asset exists. We may know that this code repository produces this artifact and it's released in these environments, right? Um, and, and that's great. That's basic inventory, knowing that that exists. Knowing anything more about that is where the challenge comes in. And the current model of, of asset inventory comes from the CMDB, which is kind of a hot button issue. So I will say this, that the CMDB um, is a model that's stood the test of time. Uh, and, you know, for the 20 or so years that it's been in operation as the standard method uh, for, for keeping track of software assets, it's, it's done its job. Um, but for the next generation of, of asset inventory, which leads downstream to automated governance, um, the CMDB tends to to fall a little short. It It's not native that it, it, that it uh, keeps up very well with microservices or serverless functions or micro apps. Um, it, it's more suited to the monolithic application. So I'll give you an example here, which is, you know, and yet we'll use the, the fictional company of Investments Unlimited. Um, and they may have 500 applications in their CMDB. And one of those applications is the uh, online banking experience, right? And the online banking experience is one application in the CMDB, but it might have 300 microservices. And so if you have a specific policy, and I'll use just an example, the Investments Unlimited has a policy that says um, that any code that affects the movement of funds must undergo this completely elevated set of controls, higher level of requirements and scrutiny because there's a greater risk associated with changes to that code. Well, the current CMDB inventory model just paints such a broad brush that all 300 services uh, in that application are now subject to the strictest level of policy because mm -hmm. maybe 10 of those microservices, yeah, the 10 of those microservices affect movement of code or say another example of you know if, if services that might be internet facing right so an internet facing versus an internal facing application also have a different risk profile so 
Why is that set just at the CMDB application level when it can be far more granular? Mm -hmm. But when it gets far more granular now, I mean, you may have, you know, Investments Unlimited might have thousands of of services that need to be accounted for. So instead well, and at of that point, so are you having to dive into the software bill of materials to really understand or no, the software bill of materials is different, isn't it? Yeah, the software bill of materials is an important part of inventory because it tells you for a particular asset what it's made of. Yeah. Um, okay. But in our sense, when we talk about asset inventory, we're more, more so talking about the relationship of, of uh, software assets to one another. So, um, you know, you know, if, if we talked about a, a, a software that was deployed that is internet facing mm -hmm. right now in the current CMDB model, it's someone's job to twice a year go into their CMDB platform and attest, yes, this is still internet facing. And the moment they click save, that information is static. It may be correct. It may not be correct. Oftentimes I've seen that. Could change. You know, yeah, Next it could change. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so our approach really, um, says, could we apply some of the automated governance principles, which is independent machine-led observation, context-driven enrichment, um, and immutable traceability to provide a continuously updating inventory. So in that, you know, in that internet-facing service category, instead of having a uh, twice-year attestation, why can't you just hook up to the load balancer to detect if that service's connection is configured for you know, uh, outward internet traffic, right? And so have it be something that's empirical and deduced from the properties of the application in its running state to define the application, not just by its name or who owns it, but the properties that it has. And what that ultimately leads to with automated governance is a way to provide very tailored and specific policies so that, you know, you're doing all the things that you need to do, but you're not overdoing it for applications that don't need it, right? So it really squeaking out that last bit of efficiency when it comes to, to governance and policy enforcement. Yeah, you're improving security, you're improving productivity, it's scalable. And yep. I mean, the, the biggest thing in my mind is like, I'm a cybersecurity girl, so I'm thinking about being able to continually see what this thing is doing rather than relying on a screenshot that was taken last year my COVID test, that one photo. It's a good um, example. Yeah, but you're like you're seeing it in real time. You know what it's actually doing right now. Or is yeah. that too aggressive? Am, am I being too um aggressive with that? Like, is it really real time or is it like there's a heartbeat that you check in every so often? Well, it certainly should be. You know, I think that's one of the things that we really work on, you know, at Fiano is making it something that's truly event driven and real time. Mm. Um, with this singular data source. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's really where, because the reason why is because it can be, it can be, so why shouldn't it be? Okay. So time is beaten us as always. Before I let you go, and before we move to our Tech Talk questions, is there one thing that you want to leave our listeners with when it comes to automated governance? Like, where do they start or let me just stop there. What's the one thing you would like to leave our listeners with? <laughs> what constitutes evidence uh, needs to change. There needs to be far more scrutiny uh, and and, and uh, a closer look at evidence and whether or not it truly answers the questions that you need to ask. Mm, okay. All right. Well, let's go to our Tech Talk questions. These are the fun questions that I get to ask you. Um, just quick, quick answers. Uh, so first question is, 
what's one thing your business did that you didn't expect? There's a lot, there's a lot of things, but I think <laughs> the one, the one that we was, was an exciting surprise. I think, you know, we, our background is in financial services and just how quickly this automated governance solution was able to apply itself to a myriad of, of, of regulatory environments. And so um, that was something that, that, that was exciting to us. Uh, and I, I think it, it really did reinforce our belief that, you know, the majority of all of these software governance principles are shared across every regulatory environment, regardless of, of what uh, regulations or guidelines your organization is subject to. Mm. All right. So I'm always looking for something new to read or watch. So what recommendations do you have for our audience? Or really, let's be honest, for me, podcasts, TV, books, movies? Um, yeah. So I, one one that really comes to mind is Toyota Kata. Um, and it's a, a book came out probably about 20 years ago about why Toyota is such an incredible manufacturer and how they're able to respond to, to evolving changes yes. in the industry. Um, and it talks about the scientific method for continuous improvement, culture of learning, focus on process, not just the result. Um, and it's a, it's a great book that, that has a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of similarities with, you know, software construction and engineering at scale. Yeah. So I haven't read the book, but I've, it's been referenced in several other books that I have read. Isn't Toyota the one that came up with you know, on the assembly line, if somebody sees something wrong, raise your hand. That's yes. them, right? Yes. Yeah. So okay. a great deal of autonomy autonomy at the lowest level of the organization. Yeah. The core pieces of that. Yeah. Okay. Good one. Um, anything else? Any other recommendations? Um, not to come to mind. I, I tell you, I'm excited about my next book that I'm going to read, which is uh, um, it's called Failure is Not an Option. It's by by Gene Kranz, who is the uh, the flight director for the Apollo 13 mission. Oh. So I'm I'm excited to get that one started. That's a good one. I'm writing that one down. I'll be adding that to my personal list right after this, as well as Toyota Kata. Is that uh, did I pronounce that right? Toyota Kata. Okay. Well, Michael, thank you so much for spending this time with me and with our listeners. Yeah, thanks for the chance. Uh, thanks for the chance to join. I appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you, listeners. Please smash that like button, share this episode, and we will talk to you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn. Twitter, and Instagram.